听，鸟儿的欢鸣，溪水的婉转。听，爱与恨，悲与喜，苦与乐，得与失。听，跳跃的文字，灵动的声音。You're listening to Morse Read。欢迎大家收听轻松调频美文阅读 More to Read， 我是沈听。让我们在这里一起听美文，学英语。在今天的节目中呢，我们将会听到英国作家约翰·拉斯金的一句话，中国唐代诗人王昌龄的一首诗歌《采莲曲》，以及由英国著名散文家托马斯·德·昆西所写的一篇文章《The Literature of Knowledge and the Literature of Power》。More to read， 用文字抒发感情。用文字诉说故事，用文字穿越古今。Daily quote. Sunshine is delicious. Rain is refreshing. Wind braces us up. Snow is exhilarating. There is really no such thing as bad weather. Only different kinds of good weather. John Ruskin. 阳光很美，雨很清新，风让我们振作起来，雪让人振奋。真的没有坏天气，只有不同种类的好天气。约翰·拉斯金。约翰·拉斯金出生于1819年 ，1900 年去世。他兴趣爱好广泛，不仅是英国的作家、艺术家和艺术评论家，还是一位哲学家、教师和业余的地质学家。作为工业设计思想的奠基者，拉斯金的思想是丰富而又庞杂的。他的思想集中在《建筑的七盏明灯》《威尼斯之石》等著作中，而其中。哥特式的本质被当作是一种宣言。他认为艺术不能脱离生活，因此在探讨艺术问题的过程中，他总是密切注意社会的实际问题。他还批评社会的不平等现象，要求普及教育。Sunshine is delicious, rain is refreshing, wind braces up. Snow is exhilarating. There is really no such thing as bad weather, only different kinds of good weather. John Ruskin. 阳光很美，雨很清新，风让我们振作起来，雪让人振奋。真的没有坏天气，只有不同种类的好天气。约翰·拉斯金。昌陵，荷叶罗裙一色裁，芙蓉向脸两边开。乱入池中看不见，闻歌始觉有人来
Lotus Plucking Tune Wang Changling Lotus leaves and the skirt are of same green. The flowers are blooming to her face to face. Not till the coming of the girls singing can her presence be felt in the riotous lake. We just heard this Tang song, "Cai Lian Qu," Lotus Plucking Tune, from Tang Dynasty poet Wang Changling. Chinese version by easy listening host Xiao Fei reading. Chinese version by Mark Griffiths reading. Chinese version by Qin Da Chuan reading. Chinese version by Qin Da Chuan reading. Chinese version by Qin Da Chuan reading. 王昌龄的七绝成就堪与李白媲美。我们今天读到的《采莲曲》是王昌龄创作的一首著名的七言绝句，出自《全唐诗》。这首诗是王昌龄在被贬龙标时所作，约作于唐玄宗天宝七年（即公元748年）的夏天。当时，王昌龄任龙标卫已经有了一段时间。一次，王昌龄独自一人在龙标城外游玩。在东西的河池，见到当地酋长的公主阿朵在河池采莲唱歌的情景，深深被其所吸引，遂作《采莲曲》。这首诗描绘了一幅美妙的采莲图，以衬托描写，巧妙地将采莲少女的美丽与大自然融为一体。整首诗歌生动活泼，富于诗情画意，饶有生活情趣。采莲曲，王昌龄。荷叶罗裙一色裁，芙蓉向脸两边开。乱入池中看不见，闻歌始觉有人来。Lotus plucking tune. Wang Changling. Lotus leaves and the skirt are of same green. The flowers are blooming to her face to face. Not till the coming of the girls singing can her presence be felt in the riotous lake. Beauty of words. Thomas De Quincey, 英国著名的散文家和批评家，出生于1785年 ，1859 年去世。他的作品华美与归奇兼具，激情与舒缓并蓄，可以说是英国浪漫主义文学中的代表性作品，被誉为少有的英语文体大师。那么，在今天的节目中呢，我就为大家选读一篇由德昆西所写的文章，《The Literature of Knowledge and the Literature of Power》，知识的文学和力量的文学。那么，由于时间关系，我们今天读到的是这篇文章当中的节选片段
，中文版本由轻松调频的主持人念希为您朗读，由刘炳善翻译。The literature of knowledge and the literature of power. 知识的文学与力量的文学。What is it that we mean by literature? Popularly and amongst the thoughtless, it is held to include everything that is printed in a book. Little logic is required to disturb that definition. The most thoughtless person is easily made aware that in the idea of literature, one essential element is some relation to a general and common interest of man, so that what applies only to a local or professional or merely personal interest, even though presenting itself in the shape of a book, will not belong to literature. So far, the definition is easily narrowed. And it is as easily expanded, for not only is much that takes a station in books not literature, but inversely, much that really is literature never reaches a station in books. 我们说的文学到底指的是什么呢？不用心思的人通常认为，它同指一切印在书上的东西。这样一个定义，用不着什么逻辑就能推翻，因为。再粗心的人也很容易看出，在文学这个概念里，一个基本要素是和人类普遍的共同的某项利益有关。因此，那些仅仅适用于某一地区、某一职业或者某一狭隘个人利益的东西，即使以书本形式公之于世，也不能算是文学。如此说来，定义的内涵不难加以收缩。不过，它也同样不难加以扩充，因为一方面，许多业已跻身书籍之林的东西并不能算是文学；另一方面，也有许多的确属于文学的东西并未印成书本。The weekly sermons of Christendom, that vast pulpit literature which acts so extensively upon the popular mind, to warn, to uphold, to renew, to comfort. To alarm, does not attain the sanctuary of libraries in the ten thousandth part of its extent. The drama, again, as for instance the finest part of Shakespeare's plays in England, and all leading Athenian plays in the noontide of the Attic stage, operated as a literature on the public mind, and were, according to the strictest letter of that term, Published through the audiences that witnessed their representation some time before they were published as things to be read, and they were published in this cynical mode of publication with much more effect than they could have had as books during ages of costly copying or of costly printing. 譬如说，基督教国家里每周必有的布道词，那规模庞大的教堂文学，它告诫着。鼓舞着，提醒着，警告着人们，广泛的影响着民众的心灵。但是在他当中，能够在那些书籍的圣堂里占有一席之地的，却达不到他那总数的万分之一。还有戏剧，例如英国莎士比亚最优秀的剧作，以及在雅典鼎盛时期的希腊戏剧代表制作，在他们作为供阅读的剧本发表之前。早就在亲眼看到演出的观众面前发表过。从发表一词最严格的字面意义来说，作为一种文学力量，在公众心灵上产生过影响。
，而且这种通过舞台形式的发表，较之后来他们成为传抄的或印刷的珍贵书册，影响要大得多。Books, therefore, do not suggest an idea coextensive and interchangeable with the idea of literature, since much literature, scenic. Forensic or didactic, as from lecturers and public orators, may never come into books, and much that does come into books may connect itself with no literary interest. But a far more important correction, applicable to the common vague idea of literature, is to be sought not so much in a better definition of literature as in a sharper distinction of the two functions which it fulfils. 这么说来。书籍和文学这两个概念，并不表示着同样久远的含义，也不可以互相替代，因为不少属于文学的东西，包括戏剧、论辩和教会，例如讲学、演说之类，也许从不收入书本，而许多印成书本的东西，又可能和文学趣味丝毫无涉。但是，为了纠正。关于文学所普遍存在的这种模糊观念，与其设法为文学寻求一个贴切的定义，倒不如把文学所起的两种作用划分个清清楚楚。In that great social organ which collectively we call literature, there may be distinguished two separate offices that may blend and often do so. But capable severally of a severe insulation, and naturally fitted for reciprocal repulsion, there is first the literature of knowledge, and secondly the literature of power. The function of the first is to teach; the function of the second is to move. The first is a rudder; the second, an oar or a sail. The first speaks to the mere discursive understanding; the second speaks, ultimately, it may happen, to the higher understanding or reason, but always through affections of pleasure and sympathy. Remotely, it may travel toward an object seated in what Lord Bacon calls dry light, but proximately, it does and must operate, else it ceases to be a literature of power, on and through that humid light. Which clothes itself in the mists and glittering iris of human passions, desires, and genial emotions. 在那从总体来说我们叫做文学的重大社会官能中，可以分辨出两种不同的职司，他们之间常常混淆不清。然而分别论之，又是截然不同，而且天然互相排斥的。这就是说，一方面具有知识的文学。另一方面，又有力量的文学，前者旨在教育，后者旨在感染；前者是惰，后者是讲或翻；前者仅仅诉诸人的推论的悟性，后者则往往而且总是通过人的喜乐之情、恻隐之心，从根本上诉诸人的高级悟性及理性。远远望去，他似乎是穿过培根爵士所谓明镜的理智之光而到达某一客体。近处看来，才知他只有通过人的七情六欲、喜怒哀乐所交织成的茫茫迷雾、闪闪彩虹，借助于在那明灭之间带着一点蒙蒙水汽的幽光
才能发挥它本来应有的作用，否则它就不成其为力量的文学了。Men have so little reflected on the higher functions of literature as to find it a paradox if one should describe it as a mean or subordinate purpose of books to give information. But this is a paradox only in the sense which makes it honourable to be paradoxical. Whenever we talk in ordinary language of seeking information or gaining knowledge, we understand the words as connected with something of absolute novelty. But it is the grandeur of all truth which can occupy a very high place in human interests that it is never absolutely novel to the meanest of minds. It exists eternally by way of germ or latent principle in the lowest as in the highest. Needing to be developed, but never to be planted. To be capable of transplantation is the immediate criterion of a truth that ranges on a lower scale. 大家对于文学的这种高尚作用想的太少，所以有人若把提供知识说成不过是书籍的一种平庸而次要的作用，大家就认为那是一种自相矛盾的奇谈。但是。奇谈归奇谈，这句似乎自相矛盾的话里仍有大可玩味之处。当我们用通常的语言谈到寻求知识、获得学问的时候，我们总是把这句话和某种完全新奇的事物联系起来。然而，在人类事业中能够占有崇高地位的一切真理，其所以伟大，就在于它哪怕对于最微贱者来说。也绝不是完全新奇的。他在最高贵者和最卑贱者的心灵中，作为一种思想的萌芽，潜藏心底的天然原则，都永恒存在着。它需要不断的发展，但永远不会被取而代之，因为能被其他东西所取代，乃是判断某种低级真理的一条无可怀疑的准绳。Besides which, there is a rarer thing than truth, namely power, or deep sympathy with truth. What is the effect, for instance, upon society of children? By the pity, by the tenderness, and by the peculiar modes of admiration which connect themselves with the helplessness, with the innocence, and with the simplicity of children. Not only are the primal affections strengthened and continually renewed. By the qualities which are dearest in the sight of heaven, the frailty, for instance, which appeals to forbearance, the innocence which symbolizes the heavenly, and the simplicity which is most alien from the worldly, are kept up in perpetual remembrance, and their ideals are continually refreshed. 此外，还有一种东西比真理更为神奇，那就是力量，或者说对真理的深切感应。譬如，想一想儿童对于社会的影响吧。由于儿童的幼弱无依、天真无邪、淳朴无伪，而引起的种种特殊的赞叹怜爱之情，不仅使人的至情至性不断的得到巩固和更新，而且由于脆弱唤醒了宽容，天真象征着天堂，淳朴远离于世俗，因此。这些在上帝面前最可宝贵的品质，也就经常受到意念，对他们的理想便可不断的重温。
A purpose of the same nature is answered by the higher literature, viz., the literature of power. Would you learn from Paradise Lost? Nothing at all. Would you learn from a cookery book? Something new, something that you did not know before, in every paragraph. But would you therefore put the wretched cookery book on a higher level of estimation than the divine poem? What you owe to Milton is not any knowledge, of which a million separate items are still but a million of advancing steps on the same earthly level. What you owe is power, that is, exercise and expansion to your own latent capacity of sympathy with the infinite. Where every pulse and each separate influx is a step upward, a step ascending as upon a Jacob's ladder from earth to mysterious altitudes above the earth. 高级的文学及力量的文学，作用与此相类。从《失乐园》，你能学到什么知识呢？什么也学不到。从一本食谱里，又能学到什么呢？从每一段都能学到你过去所不知道的某种新知识。然而，在平定甲乙的时候，难道你会因此把这本微不足道的食谱看得比那部超凡入圣的诗篇还高明吗？我们从米尔顿那里学来的并不是知识，因为知识，哪怕有一百万条，也不过是在尘俗的地面上开布一百万次罢了。而米尔顿所给予我们的是力量，也就是说，运用自己潜在的感应能力，向着无限的领域扩张。在那里，每一下脉动，每一次注入，都意味着上升一步，好似沿着雅各的天梯，从地面一步一步登上那奥秘莫测的苍穹。All the steps of knowledge, from first to last, carry you further on the same plane. But could never raise you one foot above your ancient level of earth, whereas the very first step in power is a flight, is an ascending movement into another element where earth is forgotten. Knowledge of all 力量所抬出的第一步就是飞升，就是飞向另一种境界，在那里，尘世的一切全被忘却。The literature of knowledge and the literature of power, by Thomas De Quincey. What is it that we mean by literature? Popularly and amongst the thoughtless, it is held to include everything that is printed in a book. Little logic is required to disturb that definition. The most thoughtless person is easily made aware that in the idea of literature, one essential element is some relation to a general and common interest of man. So that what applies only to a local or professional, or merely personal interest, even though presenting itself in the shape of a book, will not belong to literature. So far, the definition is easily narrowed, and it is as easily expanded. 
For not only is much that takes a station in books not literature, but inversely, much that really is literature never reaches a station in books. The weekly sermons of Christendom, that vast pulpit literature which acts so extensively upon the popular mind, to warn, to uphold, to renew, to comfort, to alarm, does not attain the sanctuary of libraries in the ten thousandth part of its extent. The drama, again, as, for instance, the finest part of Shakespeare's plays in England and all leading Athenian plays in the noontide of the Attic stage, operated as a literature on the public mind and were, according to the strictest letter of that term, published through the audiences that witnessed their representation sometime before they were published as things to be read. And they were published in this cynical mode of publication with much more effect than they could have had as books during ages of costly copying or of costly printing. Books, therefore, do not suggest an idea coextensive and interchangeable with the idea of literature, since much literature, scenic, forensic, or didactic, as from lecturers and public orators, may never come into books and much that does come into books may connect itself with no literary interest. But a far more important correction, applicable to the common vague idea of literature, is to be sought not so much in a better definition of literature as in a sharper distinction of the two functions which it fulfills. In that great social organ which collectively we call literature, there may be distinguished two separate offices that may blend and often do so, but capable severally of a severe insulation and naturally fitted for reciprocal repulsion. There is first the literature of knowledge and secondly the literature of power. The function of the first is to teach. The function of the second is to move. The first is a rudder, the second an oar or a sail. The first speaks to the mere discursive understanding. The second speaks ultimately, it may happen, to the higher understanding or reason, but always through affections of pleasure and sympathy. Remotely, it may travel toward an object seated in what Lord Bacon calls dry light. But proximately, it does and must operate, else it ceases to be a literature of power, on and through that humid light which clothes itself in the mists and glittering iris of human passions, desires, and genial emotions. Men have so little reflected on the higher functions of literature as to find it a paradox if one should describe it as a mean or subordinate purpose of books to give information. But this is a paradox only in the sense which makes it honorable to be paradoxical. Whenever we talk in ordinary language of seeking information or gaining knowledge, we understand the words as connected with something of absolute novelty. But it is the grandeur of all truth which can occupy a very high place in human interests that it is never absolutely novel to the meanest of minds. It exists eternally by way of germ or latent principle in the lowest as in the highest needing to be developed but never to be planted. 
To be capable of transplantation is the immediate criterion of a tooth that ranges on a lower scale. Today's program is over. Thank you for listening. I'm Shen Ting. We'll see you next time.